Welcome to the Founder to Mentor podcast. My name is Mike Fada. I'm an entrepreneur with multiple nine-figure exits and a passion for health and mentorship. Join me on the journey where I connect with world-class founder mentors to inspire your personal and professional growth. Let's jump into it. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Mike Fada. Today, I am excited to host Natasha Vandenherk, the co-founder and CEO of Three Farmers Foods. For all of you joining for the first time, welcome. And for those returning again, thanks for supporting these sessions. Uh, after some introductions, uh, I'm going to get Natasha's thoughts on uh, on some topics and then uh, have an opportunity for any of you, uh, if you'd like to come up and ask a question. Uh, this is a learning and networking event. Uh, we're here to help each other out. Um, and just a reminder, this is uh, being recorded. I think everyone in the audience would know my journey, but uh, for any that don't, uh, I'm born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, uh, dropped out of school at uh, at thirteen. Uh, found fa- fell prey to the fast food movement and found myself weighing three hundred pounds at eighteen years old, which uh, led me to uh, changing every aspect of my lifestyle to the healthier, uh, which got me in the health food business with Manitoba Harvest. And over twenty years, we grew that business to a hundred million in sales and exited a couple of times um, uh, for over five hundred million. Um, and uh, and now I spend the majority of my time giving back uh, through investment, advisement, mentoring, and board governance. Uh, my bio has uh, my portfolio of companies, um, as well as details of org, which is the mass mentorship toolbox uh, for CPG founders that Greg Fleischman and I launched earlier this year. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited to have this chat with Natasha with you all. Um, I met Natasha uh, and her sister with their dad uh, when they came to the Manitoba <laughs> Harvest office uh, uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, maybe it was a little bit over 10 years ago. Uh, they were just starting out uh, and looking for some advice for their um, new startup or newer startup, Three Farmers Foods, uh, which Three Farmers is a vertically integrated uh, pulse snack food company based in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Um and over the last 10 years, I've had the pleasure uh, of helping Natasha uh, as a mentor and, um, uh, you know, connecting and, and uh, giving her some of my advice of what I would do as she grew the different stages of her business and ultimately watching uh, Three Farmers grow. Um, I think even more satisfying has been seeing Natasha develop uh, from an entrepreneur into a CEO, uh, raising capital, professionalizing her team. Uh, taking a leadership position in the in the pulse snacking uh, category, uh, so I think she's a great example for other entrepreneurs to follow. Um, and I just got to say uh, that they're the new uh, Three Farmers uh, uh, Cheddar uh, Fava product is uh, is now one of my all time uh, favorite snacks. So if you haven't tried that, I would highly recommend it. Uh, welcome, Natasha. Yeah, thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Awesome. Do you uh, can you kick us off with an intro on yourself and Three Farmers Foods? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, as Mike mentioned, it's my sister and I that run the company. I have a, a business background from the University of Saskatchewan, and my sister is a Red Seal chef. Um, so she brings all the creativity and uh, and innovation to the team. And then we literally started as three farmers. So one of those farmers is my dad, and it's two neighboring farmers. Um, and we came together to give life to an idea around bringing food to Canadians in a more direct, transparent way. So all a part of this farm-to-fork movement, we're all extremely passionate about Canadian agriculture. 
and um, and we wanted the opportunity for farmers themselves to play in this whole consumer packaged goods world um, and get product to consumers in just a more transparent, direct manner. Um, so we started with a product called Camelina Oil back in 2011. So we started out in the culinary oil space, uh, which is a pretty tough space to begin in, but we, we had a lot of learnings there. Um, we did Dragon's Den early, um, which gave us some national attention and took our distribution national. And then in, we soon realized we needed to build out the product portfolio. And that's when we launched into Roasted Pulse, uh, Roasted Legume Snacks. So specifically starting with roasted chickpeas and then moving into green peas, lentils, and our latest launch that you just mentioned there, Mike, um, our new fava beans that just launched to market this year. I appreciate that. Now, I want to, uh, um, you have some perspective. We're going to get into the business, but, you know, you've been in business now for 12 years, um, right, launching in 2009. What, what, mm. what changes have you seen um, in, the, uh, in the industry um, over that decade? Well, certainly, I mean, our growth really didn't start until, uh, you know, 2014 when we launched our snacks. So I think that there has been obviously a massive growth behind just natural foods in general. When we started, I think like a lot of natural foods brands, you start in the independent and natural channel. And those are the those are the retailers and the port support systems that really champion your products. And that was where the majority of business was done. But we've seen it penetrate into other channels, conventional and club and now discount even. So it's just overall grown so enormously over the last few years. So there's just an immense amount of opportunity out there that I don't know if we really identified that early on. We were just doing what we loved and creating products and foods that, you know, we ate ourselves and and wanted to put out into the world. And um, so I think the biggest change is just really a mindset shift towards how big this this space really is and that consumers are trending this way and there's a lot more players in the space there's a lot more money in the space um, there's a lot more retailer opportunities in the space it's just grown immensely overall yeah yeah thanks and you know starting it with your sister and and your dad involved in the company as a as a shareholder and and as one of the farmers um i guess the uh the pros um and the cons of working with uh working with family can you talk about your experience there? Yeah. Um, oh, I mean, the pros, there's just a significant amount, like a comfort level there, right? You can, there's no tiptoeing around. You can be very direct. Um, so you can get a lot done and a lot said in a very short amount of time. You're not sort of navigating communication with a stranger. Um, so I think you're you're able to just cut through, you know, some things very quickly when it, when it's family. Um, early on, I would have said that it was the convenience of being able to travel with my baby and my sister <laughs> and not have to, you know, pay for multiple hotel rooms. That was certainly an early benefit, just that comfort of understanding that there's a family dynamic on the road as well when you're a female entrepreneur. Um, some of the cons, um, you know, we have not had a lot of struggles from a family perspective. I mean, my sister and I, we've had, you know, we've had our share of blowouts. We've had our disagreements, but we, our skill sets complement each other so significantly that we just completely trust the other person's expertise in certain areas. So we typically don't overset or overstep. We'll challenge, um, we'll push. Um, but ultimately, there's just such a strong trust there that it hasn't created any you know massive cons and then from our dad's perspective he's just 
just so unbelievably supportive. Um, you know, he's a farmer. He grew his farm from nothing into a, quite a large uh, farming, you know, organization. So he knows the, he knows the struggles of being an entrepreneur and the unknowns and navigating that. So he's just been a rock for us um, as we've grown this company over the last decade. And, and you're the uh, you're the older sister, right? I am only by it's, a year. Yeah. So, so yeah. and so and 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 I, and I know that um, you know with with Elisa being a, a chef and and you tackling the, uh, the 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 head of the operations, um, you kind of divided and conquered. But you know, older mm-hmm. sister, um, you're the CEO. Has there has there been times where um, you're putting your foot down of what's best for the business or um, and how does how do those situations go, or have you have you encountered much of that? We actually haven't encountered much of that. Like again, I uh, like my leadership style is very collaborative, and again, I default to you know the expert on my team in charge of that area. Of course, if I feel like something's wrong or uncertain, I'll continue to question until we get to an answer that makes sense for me. But I haven't ever had to like draw a hard line and say no, we're absolutely not going in that direction. We're going in this direction. Um, and, you know, Leisha, she's she's extremely skilled at what she does. And I absolutely trust her when it comes to product in- innovation and quality. And she will not stop until she has that product where she wants it. And then, and then from there, continually improving. So I trust her with that. And then vice versa, she trusts me to, um, you know, find the right partners, um, finance this company appropriately um make overall strategy decisions that are leading us in in you know on the path to growth and so yeah we haven't had any major conflicts in that regard um it's been fairly smooth sailing from that perspective yeah that's awesome and you know there's there's many companies examples and 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 i think probably three farmers is is one of them that when you have co-founders um especially co-founders that work well together, you, you can just, and in the early days of business, you can just do more. You can out-compete your competitors because you have, you have executives, founders that, are, that can actually accomplish more, especially when there's that um, built-in level of trust. So you, 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 ultim- you don't really have to worry. You know how the other person's going uh, to show up. So maybe, oh, yeah, uh, maybe peg yeah, that as part of the reason why you're, you're winning. Yeah, oh, huge. Like, I can't tell you how many times we've met other founders maybe at the same stage where they said I wish I had a partner that I could trust like like you two do and and we were interchangeable when it came to sales trips right so if one couldn't make it the other one could go and we had absolute absolute trust that they were going to knock it out of the park right so yeah I mean I think I've referenced trust already a million times in this conversation it is just so important in your team and so when it's already innately built into you in sort of a sisterhood, then um, yeah, you're already a step ahead. That's great. What got you into um, manufacturing instead of instead of going a different route? How, yeah. how, how did it become? Can you can you walk us back to like the uh, the start of that? And because you guys have um, continued to develop more and more on the manufacturing side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, manufacturing. It was almost less of a decision and more sort of almost being forced into it because nobody could do what we wanted them to do. Um, so when we 
started our brand, I think like most brands, we didn't want the hassle and the headaches of manufacturing. And, um, you know, we were going to outsource, we were going to co-pack. But when we developed our roasted snacks, our, specifically our chickpeas, because it was our first product line, when we went out to commercialize, we soon realized that there was nobody, certainly no co-packers in Canada that could roast to the specifications and the quality that we wanted. And if we looked into the U.S., nobody was dry roasting down there, which is really important to us from a nutrition and quality perspective. And even if they had, um, it would have been really hard to make the margins work um, just with the exchange and, and of course, all of the challenges when you're starting out with low volumes and that sort of thing. So we ended up pulling together a really scrappy agreement with another processor here in um, Saskatchewan because we had launched the product to market, timing it around some Dragon's Den PR and we were still producing at a food center. And anybody that's produced at a food center know that they're not made for commercial production. They're made for pilot testing products. So we were really scrambling to um, to figure out a solution for our manufacturing. And we ended up partnering with another female entrepreneur here in Saskatchewan um, that needed extra volume. She had a space. She had the people. She had the food safety knowledge. And we ended up purchasing equipment and putting it in her space. And we're still in that partnership today, like eight years later. So, and we've scaled up there. We've um, custom built ovens and moved them into that space. And it's been working out really well. But it was really, we were sort of forced in that direction just based on the quality um, that we wanted out of our product and, um, and how, and the method of roasting that we wanted to pursue. And do you see it? Um, how are you feeling now? Are you... Um are you bullish oh, on I manufacturing or, or would you go co-pack? Um... Yeah. In our case, it's been crucial. I, I, for us, when we think about some of the, the competitors that are out in the space, I mean, they're all fried products. So that whole concept of, um, you know, high protein, low fat, it, it's really hard to get there when your product is being fried. Um, so there's a quality and nutritional perspective to it. But the other piece of it is the seasoning um, side of things and the, and the development of our flavors. Again, this is where Alicia's expertise come in. When we're developing, we just went through a ex- huge exercise this year of converting all of our flavors to a new seasoning supplier um, because ours was shutting down and moving their operations to the U.S. And so, you know, we went through no less than 10 different seasoning iterations of each seasoning flavor uh, to get it where we needed it to be. And that was all driven internally by Alicia. And I don't know if we would have the autonomy to do that type of work um, if we were using a co-packer and to have that kind of say in terms of what we wanted our final product to be like. And perhaps, you know, we never went down that path of a, uh, path of a co-packer, so perhaps it is there. But for us, just owning that quality piece, owning the procurement of our ingredients, knowing where they're coming from and how we're sourcing them, and then being able to control that through COVID, it's been super crucial for us. So we're really, we're really happy that we're manufacturing and we're owning that piece of our, um, of our company. Yeah, that's awesome. You and I have had enough discussions to know that I'm, I'm also bullish on manufacturing, especially when you can start to get uh, vertically integrated like you guys have. But um, you talked a little bit about just the progression, but, you know, starting with Camelina seed oil, which, you know, oil just in general is a tough business, but then getting into chickpeas and lentils and faba and, faba and, and making it, you know, really becoming a, a snack food company. Um, how do you guys plan innovation or how did you used to plan innovation? How are you thinking about that differently now? Give us some perspective on that. Mm. Well, I think it's evolved over the years. Um, 
I mean, when we started with our chickpeas, I mean, the first, we just wanted to do something with chickpeas. Saskatchewan is one of the top world's producers of chickpeas. And so, um, and, and part of our, this whole vertical integration and, and adding value to Canadian products here at home was so crucial. And it's just a part of our DNA. So that's how we landed on chickpeas, but it wasn't a roasted chickpea snack that we started with. It was a hummus. (laughs) Um, so it was like a fresh product. Um, and we commercialized it and we made a big batch and, and, and of production and we brought it to a show in Toronto and we found out it had spoiled all the way to Toronto. So um, that really killed that dream right in its path r- very early on. So when we thought about innovation early on, it was just, you know, what do we like? What do we want to try? Let's go do it. Um, and now when we think about innovation, we have a sort of a whole check sheet of things that we need to consider when we think about innovation, of course, trends, um, how does it fit within the current port, uh, product portfolio? Um, how does it interact with our, our existing products on shelf? Um, is it leveraging any sort of CapEx that we've already invested in? Um, obviously margins. So what are, what's the whole P and L perspective of this, this new product line and how does that, um, you know, work within the the full company portfolio. So there's a whole check sheet that we look at. Uh, it's a lot less based on what do we want to do and a lot more based on what works within this company and it's going to drive revenues and margin and ultimately satisfy our consumers. So um, so there's a little bit more science behind it uh, these days than perhaps early in the beginnings. Yeah, thanks for that. And you know, walk us through, I guess, on the from a marketing standpoint, and I know I've had my fair share of chats with you maybe on this one over the years, but, you know, starting out as an oil company now being front and center as a pulse snacking company, um, kind of the learnings there, the positioning of the brand for entrepreneurs that are maybe starting in one product, but thinking that they may evolve into a different product or different category. Mm -hmm. I guess my, my comment there is it's truly an evolution. Um, we have had so many comments or so many conversations over the years, just between us, Mike, of, uh, you know, like really, identifying as a whole bean snack company and it took us a long time to get there because we did start with this camelina oil and we still do see a lot of opportunity with that product it's a great oil product it's the exclusive oil i use in my home and we hear that from so many customers about how much they enjoy it but at the end of the day the economics of pushing that product into the marketplace and and paying those marketing fees to to push people to pull it off shelf it was just such an expensive um growth story when it came to the Camelina. So it took us a long time to, I think, wrap our heads around, you know, this whole concept of bean snacking just because it came second um, and to fully identify um, ourselves as this whole bean snack company. So that took a long time and it's really just a, it was a slight mindset shift really. Um, But yeah, I, I really do think it's, it's an evolution. It's, it's, um, a thread of like, or it's the result of all of the conversations you have along the way with people like yourselves, your mentors, people within your company, your consumers, absolutely your consumers. What are they saying? What are they loving? What are they needing from you? And then your retailers, because at the end of the day, that's your first sale. You, know, you need to get it on shelf. What are your retailers saying? What do they need? And and how are you servicing that need for them? And, and it was, you know, all of those things sort of culminating together that um, finally drove us to repositioning ourselves as as a snack food company specifically in the whole bean space so um, but it doesn't happen overnight it's a lot of soul searching a lot of conversations and and just making decisions day by day no I, I love it and uh, I know I even gave you a little bit of a hard time there just because I have the uh, uh, as a good mentor would because uh, I have the scars on my back from you know Manitoba Harvest started as an oil company 
Uh, and then when we when we realized that we were a hemp heart company, um, we had to put all the focus there so that consumers really understood what the brand was all about. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and and I, I recall there was there was some uh, I'm not sure on that. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it it's 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 good to uh, I think you're 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 framing it in a great way that it, it is a never ending storybook. Um, where it's it's evolution. You know, continue to get insights and listen. Um, so I, I think that was a great uh a great share for people. Um, appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting too, when you look backwards, it always seems so obvious. Um, but when you're making that decision at that time, um, it's, it's really not that obvious. Um, so, and that happens, not just about like the brand positioning, it's about the product innovation, all of these things. Um, yeah. Everything, everything is so clear when you're looking backwards. That's why you're destined to help other people. So yeah yeah uh yeah so marketing i want to jump into marketing Uh, let's maybe start with uh dragon's den you know you guys were uh you guys were the og on dragon's den um but i'd love to get your perspective because i know that it wasn't a kind of one and done you've had um there's there's been some ongoing i mean i even think that uh i've seen the uh the canada post commercials that uh that highlight three farmers but you know how 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 important was that do you think in in uh, in generating uh kind of exposure or what 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 uh how did that impact the brand mm-hmm. i think that dragon's den was extremely important for for the brand early on i the exposure piece i mean there was those initial revenues, but I think what it was really important f- for was really for us actually just to see the actual potential behind this brand and that consumers loved the concept of this three farmers brand, this transparency, the fact that there was real Canadian farmers behind it and they, they were eating it up. They loved it. They loved that truly authentic story. And so it just added early validation um, that very first Dragon's Den. And then moving on to do the Canada Post commercials, um, aside from just the fun of having, um, you know, people from Toronto out to the farm, they'd literally never been on a farm, and then putting our three farmers on camera, which was just, you know, horrendous for them. It's like their worst nightmare. <laughs> so just the fun around uh, that was just really amazing. Um, but yeah, the exposure that those Canada Post commercials gave, and then that second episode around the snacks. Any type of PR like that, especially when you're not paying top dollar for it, is just super crucial. And I mean, that was however many years ago now, I suppose, six years ago. So nowadays it's all about, you know, social media and YouTube and TikTok. And um, and I wouldn't say, I don't, you know, that's not our strongest area. And so when we look at partners moving forward, we look at somebody that can help supplement that space for us. Um, I think we've done a great job on, on building a brand that's authentic and that has meaning and that resonates with consumers. But then to megaphone that out to everyone, um, that's always been a bit of a challenge for us. I think we come from farming roots. It's just we're humble, we're quiet. We don't think about sort of megaphoning that out there. And uh, it's one of the areas where we always sort of seek support, whether it be from agencies or from investment partners, that type of thing. Yeah, talk to us more about that on the marketing side. Like, um, you know, you and maybe from the thought on personal brand, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, influencers, 
Uh, Alicia's a chef, so she's in that foodie kind of space. Uh, it's all, also highly nutritious product. Um, so, like you know, the, the practitioners, nutritionists. But uh, what's your? How do you divide up the the kind of dollars, or where's your focus areas across those you know, communication parts of marketing? Mm-hmm. Well, not even in the last. 20 months um, has been a lot of soul searching we've been doing internally as well. Prior to COVID, it was really, I mean, we thought about retail and, and that was the number one focus. So when we were investing, it was in trade spend, it was in secondary display at retail, it was in demos and sampling, really sort of organic streams of marketing that were done at the retail outlet. And then, of course, COVID hits and it sort of uproots all those plans and you you can't demo anymore in store and all of, you you know, you're not doing consumer trade shows and you're not out in the marketplace speaking to your consumers and everything transitioned to digital. And so we've been on sort of a soul searching mission ourselves over the last 20 months to understand this space a lot better. We're still a really lean team. We don't have a marketing department internally. We have agencies that we leverage, but I mean, agencies are only good as good as how you manage them as well. So um, right now we focus, we still have our trade bucket, obviously, especially as we push into the US. Um, we have a, a, you know, our trade spend to support those listings. Um, and, and that's super important to us. But when we look at online, we do uh, support a lot of dollars for third-party channels. So when we think about Amazon, there's a specific budget for that. And then we have another budget laid out for um, social advertising and digital sampling um, we're lucky our product is like we have 15 gram samples that we can mail out. It's shelf stable. Um, so we're able still to do the, that consumer sampling. But um, but yeah, that's kind of how we look at our budget. So we have our sort of third party um, Amazon um, advertising management. And then we have our communications and sampling. And then, of course, our trade budget. And I appreciate that. Um, yeah, thanks. How about uh, you, you talked a little bit about, you know, and you guys went into the U.S. And I think went into the U.S., Kind of first, right, and then maybe um, didn't it didn't work out, and then and then you you kind of retrenched and planned out a different launch into the U.S. So uh, I think you have probably more you, you have experience. You survived, and you're kind of going back uh, and and trying to do it right. But um, talk to us about um, you know your geographic markets and and sales channels and how you guys focus on that, including kind of Canada versus U.S. Hmm. So we actually haven't done a full-on push into the U.S. until recently. So we were actually really focused on Canada. We wanted to build a really strong home base here in Canada and go um, deep with our retailers, go uh, multi-channel, so penetrate all of those channels and build a really solid business here and then go deep with our product portfolio as well. Um, And so that's what we've been pushing for. And then, of course, when COVID hit... um, you know, that sort of fast track this, con- like, and half of our channels shut down because remember, Canadian Canada is not a, a huge market. Um, when you think of the, you know, consumer packaged goods overall, there's a lot of opportunity. Um, and luckily, we were grounded in some really solid um, key accounts here in Canada, but we lost, you know, convenience, airports, um, discount stores. So TJX is actually a large retailer here in Canada that can do quite a bit of volume. Um, so we lost a lot of that business there. And it really sort of opened to our eyes to the fact that we really did need uh, larger market opportunities and we needed to move into the U.S. Um, a little quicker than we, when we, than we might have thought initially. And so um, we've been pushing into the U.S. for about eight months now, um, actively presenting to buyers. We have a um, third-party uh, sales team on the ground and we'll be adding a director of sales in the U.S. in the next few months here um, to obviously manage them and 
assist with strategy and that sort of thing. So it is our first crack at the U.S. We're seeing really good results early on. So we've landed a couple of our key um, targets already. Thrive Market Online was one of the first. Uh, we've launched into a number of the infra independents down through the Kehi channel um, and seeing great velocities uh which is just indicative of um, hopefully what we'll see through some of those natural retailers when we land them. So, so seeing good results early on, but we're still still very early in our evolution in the U.S. And we've heard a lot of uh, a lot of um, cautionary tales from other Canadian brands. So we are moving quite cautiously when we think about the U.S. and our strategy down there. Yeah, thanks for um, thanks for sharing that. You know, I, I've witnessed you, but I'd love to hear hear some of your thoughts for others. You know, growing from an entrepreneur. Uh, to a CEO, um, you know, as you have more shareholders and board meetings and stuff, can you can you kind of talk about your uh, your experience there? Mm-hmm. This was another area where I think I recognized my weaknesses really early on, and I knew that um, institutional capital, growth capital, was definitely in the future for us. It was on the horizon, and so um, we took it upon ourselves to actively build a a board early on um, of independence and sort of start, I I guess, creating that sort of culture within of uh, accountability and reporting and governance and that type of thing. Um, And so we did that quite early on. Um, It was a rocky journey, I would say, for myself. Again, young entrepreneur, um, small team. And when when you take that type of structure uh, on, into a small company like that, you really have to recognize the size of the company and it can be extremely distracting from what's important at that stage, which is you know, driving sales, um, innovation, um, customer retention, all of these extremely important things for a young, growing consumer packaged goods brand. And so it, it did add an element of distraction. Um, so that was maybe you know, one of the cautionary tales around, around building out board governance too early. Um, the good thing was it pushed us hard uh, to put structure in place around um, financial reporting, um, building that that type of, you know, pulling our CFO in, building out our controller team, our finance team, um, um, even just pushing my communication skills. Uh, when you're living and breathing the company, you think everything comes second nature to people. It does not. If you want to get your point across and you want to push your agenda forward, you need to speak in a way that makes people that aren't as intimate with the company understand it um, and feel comfortable with the decisions that they're making. And that was extremely difficult uh, for just the learning curve was very hard. So that said, um, I I guess it's gotten me to this point where I do actually have the confidence now moving into board meetings that, you know, our package is put together in a really clear, succinct way. We're getting our message across. It's well thought out. It's strategized and we're able to present it in a clear manner, but that took a really long time to get to, and it was it was really challenging for sure. So, um, I, I think it's necessary uh, to to build that board and that governance. It's just when is the big question, and I think it's really important that young entrepreneurs give that some deep thought because it can be highly distracting. And if it's not the right time, um, you're just again distracting yourself from what's really important at that time. So timing is everything with that. That was a that was a great share, um, and you know I guess and and I say you know it's that that's the thing about being an entrepreneur and growing into CEO it's just it's constant personal growth, um, 
Where have you learned uh, or where are you learning? Um, is it practical, like actually being in the structure and reporting to your board or, or, or what sources of information are you going to, uh, to learn? Well, practical is a piece of it. I would say a lot, a lot of reading, a lot of podcasting. And there's been sort of pivotal parts in my journey where I had wake up calls like I am not where I need to be to tackle this next phase of growth. Um, I can like literally think of them in my head right now. One was when I was headed down to New York to do a, a pitch um, at a capital raise uh, forum and think we were growing quickly, but it just, everything felt so out of control. And I just, my team was still really small. And I remember at that point, somebody introduced me to a number of podcasts. One of them was called like the one thing um, and, and just this premise of like, in any given day, there's 5 million different things you can do, but there's one or two that are actually really, really important that make everything else either unnecessary or a lot easier. And um, just that methodology really stuck with me. And that's kind of what sent me on my learning journey through podcasting and a ton of reading around like team building, accountability, communication training, all of these things that are absolutely required when you're managing up or down. Um, so, so that's, so it's been through just my own personal research. I've looked at um, business coaching. I just haven't been able to find something that feels like a really good fit yet. Um, so I still do a lot of just that personal learning on my own time through, again, just like people like yourself, forums like what we're doing right now. Um, and then, of course, just the daily grind, which is the practical side of things where you're literally learning every day on the fly. Wise words. Those, those are all good things and uh, um, appreciate that. And now I know who I'm hitting up is, you know. Uh, fatofleischman.org we are going to set up a mentorship program uh and uh and then we know that we can uh, sign you up as a mentor maybe and share some of that wisdom down because um especially in the early years and and um setting up the business and 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 really starting to get it into you know the form of institutionalizing it and and i believe there's more challenges even for for female uh ceos in that in that space um the learning is uh, is key mm-hmm. um yeah. I'd love to talk about financing the business because I, I think that um, uh, Three Farmers used um, a, a bunch of different sources and maybe some creative ways, uh, shareholders' loans or grants or, you know, uh, can, can you walk us through kind of how you guys have financed the business today? Yeah, for sure. Another path where I feel like we tried to forge our own way and um, we always come back to just, you know, this main model of sort of institutional capital, um, which is just so important in this space. But so early on, we had we had a really unconventional model. We had three farmers that were really believed in what we were doing and were there to finance us. So money stress, unlike a lot of startups, you know, wasn't really a thing for us. We are extremely frugal. Um, if anybody knows my sister and I, extremely frugal um, early on. And so we were financed by our farmers. So there's a lot of uh, programs and support put on by the government um, and organizations out here that will help finance CapEx, innovation, um, even sales and marketing ventures sometimes. So, so we've been very... Um, aware of what those programs are and those have really helped finance us to date as well and then we did um, when our farmers were sort of tapped um, and we needed to grow our investor circle we went ended up going out to family and friends we ended up using a concept called a safe a simple agreement for future equity it somewhat operates like, like a convertible debenture I guess 
Um, and so we put those in place. We raised a few dollars using those, and then those converted last year on our first institutional round uh, with a local VC fund here. And, um, and now we're embarking on another round um, for growth into the U.S. and another manufacturing expansion. So, so now we're, we're a little bit more traditional with our um, institutional raises moving forward. Yeah, thanks. Um, appreciate the share. Uh, what inspires you? What inspires me? Oh, I'm inspired all the time by just little things. Um, people on my team. I have really amazing people on my team. And the creativity they bring to work and the passion they bring to work every day is super inspiring. Um, other Seeing other entrepreneurs succeed in this space, um, which is just fraught with obstacles, I think that's inspiring, knowing that, um, you know, if they're succeeding and we're succeeding, this is actually possible every single day when we're setting out to do what we need to do. Yeah, I, what's inspiring to me? I think, yeah, driven largely by the people around me. They're, we're, you know, we're trying to do amazing, hard things every single day, and that just in and of itself is inspiring. It's, Definitely what gets me out of bed every day. Spoken like a true leader right there. Uh, like that. <laughs> Love it. Um, how about brands that you watch? Brands that I watch outside of my direct competitors? <laughs> um, brands that I watch. I like really young brands that are, you know, just launching onto the um, into the space right now, doing it through e-commerce. I always think that's interesting. Um and, but then I also love watching really mature brands. Like I love watching, you know, Nature's Path and how they're still focused on growth. Little Potato Company, she's on our, she's on our board. She's done phenomenal things and a very similar story to us, like farmer-backed and um, grown it herself uh, into this thriving, you know, few hundred million dollar company. Made good, so purpose-driven. Um, yeah, I, I just love, I love watching Canadian brands succeed, especially when it's North America wide. Um, once they start branching out of the Canadian market and having success in the U.S., I think that's, that's phenomenal. Love it. Thank you. The, the mission and vision and values uh, for Three Farmers, has that, um, is that set now? Are you guys, uh, you guys promote that, publish it? Um, mm-hmm. I- An evolution as well. Um, I, you know, has it changed? No. I mean, our mission has always been to put healthy foods out into the world and connect, you know, consumers with farmers. That has been our vision from day one. When we think about like our BHAG, if you're thinking about a big, hairy, audacious goal, I know everybody is familiar with that term. Our goal really is to take um, bean-based snacking mainstream. So to grow this from a $100 million category in North America to a billion-dollar category in North America and that's what we have, you know, posted across our presentations. And that's what we drive home with our team so that they can really understand what is the tangible goal that we're trying to do here. We don't believe that healthy snacking has to be selective. We don't believe that it needs to be um, only available to a select few that can afford it. We believe that healthy snacking can be made available to everyone. And, and that's really our goal um, here at Three Farmers is to just take this mainstream and, and break out of this sort of niche space. Um, and, you know, we're starting in the natural foods aisle, but we absolutely believe that we can get out of that aisle and, and create more exposure and reach the everyday consumer that's potentially not walking down that aisle at the grocery store um, and just bring a little extra nutrition to their days and make it convenient for them. 
I think you guys are going to do it. I'm, uh, I, I hear it in your voice, and uh, I think it's more laser focused than it ever has been. And you guys are creating success off that. So good on you. How about you as a, uh, um, you know, you're doing a lot um, as an entrepreneur, as a mom, um, as a CEO. Um, do, you, do you have regular habits or routines that you think are an integral part of your success? Hmm. Those morning walks are pretty important. Those morning podcasts, just the quiet time, just me, just setting myself up for the day, um, especially if it's a really big day ahead of me with, you know, big meetings or big conversations. So that quiet time in the morning is really important. Um, the balancing of work and home is always extremely challenging, I think, for all parents, um, you know, and it's evolved over the years. I'm not having babies anymore. That was a number of years in a row where it adds an element of chaos and stress. It's extremely hard to manage and, and your lack of sleep. Um, so that learning piece, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, self-learning and, and leadership that really does, it is very hard to manage and find the space to do that when you're so low on sleep and you're caring for other human beings in that capacity. So um, I think I'm just so grateful to have that time now, now that I'm on the other side of that. Um, but I also make sure that, you know, supper time, meal time together as a family is extremely important to us. Um, we're all running in different directions. So trying to like shut the work down to have a meal and be present with the family and then go back to work after supper as required. So I think one thing I've really learned is you're, you're going to drive yourself crazy if you're trying to do both work and family at the same time. Um, you really need to figure out how to set the boundaries and like shut one down so you can enjoy the other. Um, and that is really hard. And that took just years and years of practice and learning for me to get there. Um, but I think I'm, I'm in a better space. It can change on any given day, but today I'm feeling pretty good, good, good about the balance. Sounds, sounds like it's coming out pretty, uh, pretty, pretty, pretty conscious and, and mindful. So, um, yeah. yeah, thanks for the, uh, thanks for the share. How about mentorship? Can we talk about mentorship? Like your, your thoughts on mentorship? Um, you know, maybe how you, this question comes up and people are asking like how they find their mentor, um, that kind of give and take of mentorship. What's, uh, what's been your experience there? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it can't be forced. It has to sort of evolve naturally. Um, I don't have somebody I call on, you know, every week regularly that I, that like my one go-to person, um, it's often through spontaneous conversation. Like Mike, we often connect, right? You'd obviously be a close mentor of mine that has shown up in pivotal ways through the evolution of this company. Um, I have had formal you know, advisory boards that have helped me through really tough times, you, you know, when we were putting that initial governance structure in, just having a third party, um, you know, sort of advise me through that and some of the challenges I was having with that. So I think mentorship is absolutely crucial. It's super important. I don't think it needs to be always so structured with like set meetings and, and that type of thing. I think it can be more spontaneous just as long as you have the network available to you so that you can reach out to them when you truly do have that problem or that item that you need to discuss and, and really move through. I'm definitely a verbal thinker. I need to, I need to talk about thoughts. I can't just, I mean, I sit with them too, but I, I need to sort of talk them out with people and it adds clarity for me. So, you know, that's what mentorship has been for me uh, moving through this. Just, 
I, I really do value people's experiences. I think that um, I'm, I think I'm just all too aware of what I don't know. <laughs> um, and so I like to po- talk to people that have been there, done that, because uh, it just really helps me with my decision making and helps me feel more confident about confident about the path i'm foraging forward yeah thanks and i and you know i think it's different for everybody a little bit different path but that was a great share i um as i i and i would agree there it's about the community or the network um and then less structure more using the community or network of 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 the mentors whoever whoever that is of, of experiences when you're coming to a new growth place as an entrepreneur um and getting perspective there Mm -hmm. for me that kind of sums up of like what you know what the real form of mentorship can be to help entrepreneurs kind of get past obstacles you know without uh developing that scar on their back of getting it wrong if uh if they have someone else that can kind of help them out there yeah absolutely and it's 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 timely too you need advice in a timely way right so you just want to have some want to have somebody that you can have access to to speak out your problems you know in an immediate fashion if it's on your mind and you're making decisions they need to be available to have that call yeah well, um, again, and a little, a little mini quick commercial uh, break, but, you know, uh, Greg and I, um, Greg Fleischman, as we develop org and where it's growing into, we really see that. We want to offer mass mentorship tools like we do if you go to the website and you can sign up. But um, our, our goal there is to have a, uh, a simple mentor matching um, uh, service or program for free for entrepreneurs in, in the natural product space to be able to come and, and, and get uh, teamed up. Because there's many uh, entrepreneurs, and I would say like you, Natasha, that have grown a tremendous amount, learned a tremendous amount, um, and uh, and can really help just with a you know, sometimes it's a 10 or 15 minute conversation or, or, or a text exchange or something. And, and, and it really can change the direction of a business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Giving back. Uh, what does that look like for, I guess, three farmers yourself? How do you, how do you see giving back? Um, I, well, I think there's on the corporate level. So we uh, absolutely partner with um, like food banks and, um, and, and donating, you know, snacks in that manner. So again, trying to get our product in the hands that pe- of people that need it the most. Um, so, so we look at sort of corporate giving through that lens, um, and we try not to just you know reserve it for the holiday season. Um, it's something that's ongoing, and and we absolutely live and breathe at Three Farmers. Um, and then I think it's the personal giving back. So um, I would never say no to somebody reaching out to me that wanted to have a conversation and um, get my perspective on something or. Um, talk about an experience I had that they might be going through as well. So I think uh, that personal piece of always having your door open and ready to listen and ready to share and be transparent and be real with people, um, that's a form of giving back as well. And we take that very seriously at Three Farmers as well. We have a very you know open door policy. And at the end of the day, we're here to help each other succeed. So I think that's the sort of personal giving back that we try to bring to the workplace every single day. I love it. I love the thinking and uh, be careful what you wish for because, you know, this, uh, this, this session may go viral or will live on for a long time and then people will connect with you. Uh, and, but, you know, that's how it, that's how it really goes. Um, yeah. Big believer in that, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else that, uh, that you want to share before we jump into uh, to any questions from, uh, from the audience? No, I don't think so. I think we touched on a lot. Um, yeah, I just think every everybody's journey is so different, and and it's it's the business journey. You're trying to figure out 
the business side of things every single day, but then there's also this whole personal journey that's going on simultaneous to that, where you're trying to figure yourself out every single day. And um, it's uh, it can be mental overload sometimes, so making sure that you remember this is mar- a marathon, not a sprint, and you're taking time to really sort of rejuvenate and, uh, and manage the mental load, um, that's been really important for me, definitely over the last year or so. I think it's a... Great share um, and health health first so that you're good to you and you're everyone else, including your team and the business. Thank you for listening to the Founder to Mentor podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to check out the links and resources in the show notes. You can help the show, please, by subscribing and leaving a positive review. As always, feel free to get in touch with me on social at Mike Fada. That's it for now. See you next time.